Welcome to the American College of Mohs Surgery podcast series, Conversations in Mohs Surgery, where Dr. Thomas Kanakstat, academic dermatologist and Mohs surgeon in Cleveland, takes a closer look at articles published in the dermatology literature by speaking with the authors and researchers involved. The podcast is an extension of the college's online bibliography, a searchable high-yield article reference library aligned with the Micrographic Surgery and Dermatologic Oncology Fellowship Curriculum, accessible to ACMS members at www.mosecollege.org slash bibliography. Listeners can suggest articles for inclusion in the bibliography or guests for this podcast by sending an email to info at mosecollege.org. That's info at mohscollege.org. Thank you for listening. Hello, this is Dr. Thomas Knaxted once again for Conversations in Mohs Surgery. I'm excited to be back with you all after a brief hiatus, and we've got several exciting podcast topics lined up. Before we introduce today's guest, I want to welcome Aaron Johnson, who's the ACMS Senior Communications and Membership Manager, and will be the producer of our podcast. Today, I'm going to be speaking with Dr. Timothy Smile from the Cleveland Clinic Foundation Department of Radiation Oncology. We're going to be talking about the implications of satellitosis or in-transit metastasis in cutaneous squamous cell carcinoma based on his recent publication in JAMA Derm. Thank you so much for joining me today, Tim. Thank you, Thomas. It's a pleasure to be here. I think most of our listeners are probably more familiar with this topic in the realm of melanoma, and we probably see this as a serious or bad outcome with a greater frequency in our melanoma patients. So as it relates to defining in-transit METs and what it means for for nodal staging, why don't we start in the realm where we know it uh, in terms of melanoma? So do you mind just giving us a general idea of how you think about local regional disease and the definitions of what's a satellitosis, what's in transit met, and we'll just see where that takes us. Sure. Um, So the way that I kind of think about in transit metastasis is defining it as a focus of metastatic cancer that's between the primary tumor and the first echelon draining lymphatic nodes. It's considered an intralymphatic process, but not it's it's distinct from the primary and it's distinct from a, from like a nodal metastasis um, and so these are often found in the dermis or other non nodal tissue the it's it's needs to be sort of distinguished from the entity of dermal metastasis which can appear similar um, clinical and pathologic presentation but those uh, arise in the clinical scenario consistent with hematogenous metastases. So this is something that has been included in the in the AJCC 8th uh, edition staging for Merkel cell carcinoma and cutaneous melanoma. Um, and the in-transit metastasis is, is included in the nodal staging for those, whereas that dermal metastasis I mentioned is uh, considered like M1A for both of those uh, diseases per AJCC. I think you also asked the difference between satellitosis and in-transit metastasis. Within the space of cutaneous squamous cell carcinoma, which is where my research has been, um, I don't really think of those as being uh, distinct from each other. They're sort of terms that are used interchangeably in my mind. And maybe it's just because it's such a rare phenomenon that that's the case. But 
the informal distinction I've seen some clinicians use is that satellitosis uh, refers to these like dermal metastases that are in close proximity to the primary tumor. But, you know, I think within melanoma, it's maybe de- defined uh, more rigidly uh, with satellitosis being like within two centimeters of the primary and in transit metastasis being beyond that space. I see. And, I, it, you know, it's interesting, as I was preparing for our conversation today, I started digging through some case reports. And we we want to just picture that this process is between the primary tumor and the draining lymph nodes. But because it's a lymphatic process, if you have high enough tumor burden, you can actually have lymphatic blockage and your in-transit metastases can, especially on an extremity, be distal to the primary tumor and sort of a greater distance from the nodal basin than the primary tumor just because of that lymphatic drainage uh, mm-hmm. being blocked. And so, again, we'll start with melanoma here because it's a little bit more well-established and perhaps in some ways it prompted your thoughts on squamous cell. Do we have anything in melanoma that predicts the likelihood of developing in-transit METs? And for the rest of the conversation, we'll just sort of use in-transit METs, realizing that a lot of this also applies to satellitosis. Is there anything in the melanoma literature about who's at risk for getting in-transit METs? Um, that's a good question. You know, from from what I've read uh, briefly, it seems like primary tumor uh, high-risk features can be associated with a higher risk of what is still not super common, uh, probably less than 10% chance of this developing, even with a high-risk tumor in melanoma. But I think tumor thickness has been associated with it, from what I've read. So I think that would be kind of one place to look. Um, may, perhaps things like ulceration or or other high-risk uh, histopathologic features could be associated that could be associated with nodal metastases in general. Uh, could increase your risk of having an in-transit metastasis as well. And I think what you mentioned about the thickness is is quite accurate. And if you look at melanomas that are less than one millimeter in thickness, they have a fraction of a percent risk of developing in-transit metastasis, which makes sense because that's also probably what their risk of nodal disease is. But as you get to over one millimeter, you're starting to approach six, seven, and eight percent risk Mm -hmm. of or incidence i should say of in transit metastasis and it really is the classic features it's ulceration not surprisingly it's going to be the lymphovascular invasion because that's Mm -hmm. how we think this happens and i don't know if this one really will apply to squamous cell carcinoma but in melanoma certainly the lower extremity location and we do see a lot of melanoma on the lower extremity and yeah. just because I know this will be a focus of what, what you and I talk about, in melanoma, these in-transit metastases happen a median time of about 18 months from the time of the primary melanoma. And then the median survival ends up being about 20 months. So it's a fairly serious diagnosis. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Talking about the treatment of in-transit METs will be something we do at the end. And again, at that point, I'll want to come back to melanoma because maybe there's things we can learn from that. But I want to introduce your your study a little bit here. And, and maybe you can just summarize the study that you all 
conducted as this sort of two institution cohort for us. Yeah, sure. So you you talked about a lot of interesting things there. Uh, in particular, I, I just want to mention that when when you look at the uh, recurrence rates after in transit metastases with cutaneous squamous cell carcinomas, it seems there's some data to suggest that those may recur more quickly than kind of what you described in the melanoma space. So um, I thought that was just kind of an interesting tidbit there. Mm-hmm. But we've at the Cleveland Clinic, the dermatology and radiation oncology departments kind of maintain this relatively robust database of uh, cutaneous squamous cell carcinomas. And we've been looking at in-transit metastasis because um, as we discussed earlier, it's included in the nodal staging for Merkel cell and cutaneous melanoma, uh, but it's kind of conspicuously missing from the nodal staging for squamous cell carcinoma. And uh, yeah, we know that those are very distinct and different um, diseases, but we kind of wanted to see, what, because we've seen these in clinic and it's hard to know what their prognosis is and how hard, uh, how aggressive we should be with, with treatment, um, trying to understand a little bit the prognosis of in-transit metastases, satellitosis, um, that, that sort of clinical entity, and hoping understand if there's a way we could incorporate that into future staging studies. So uh, we collaborated with Brigham and Women's, who they maintain a, a um, very robust prospective uh, database that captures all of, those, all of these risk factors, uh, including in-transit metastasis for their squamous cell carcinoma patients. Uh, that's led by Dr. Ruiz and Dr. Schmaltz. And so after collaborating on some other projects, we decided to pool our data for uh, in-transit metastasis patients with them and try to compare them to other established risk groups in the AJCC 8th edition uh, to try to see where in-transit metastasis sort of lands prognostically. Uh, this was treatment agnostic, so we just did, we didn't uh, look at uh, how they were cared for, uh, but we just sort of observed cumulative incidence of uh, recurrence and then disease-specific survival, since it would be a staging prognostic evaluation. Uh, and what we observed is that in-transit metastasis has higher rates of recurrence. Um, I, I should mention before I, I, I tell the results, we wanted we wanted these patients to be node negative. So having in-transit metastases, but, but negative nodes, uh, they ended up recurring more frequently when compared to T3N0 and T4N0 cohorts. But when we did these pairwise comparisons to node positive patients, uh, they had comparable rates of recurrence. So kind of in a similar uh, vein to Merkel and melanoma, it seems like these patients have recurrence rates that are comparable uh, to no, no positive patients. And so just to, to go back here, the, the initial comparison was to T3 node negative and T4 node negative tumors, which the T3, of course, will be the sort of four centimeter or larger deep invasion or perineural invasion tumors. And then, of course, the T4 in the eighth edition would be your bone invasion tumors. And the in-transit patients, you're, you're saying, do worse than the higher risk tumors that are node negative, but the in-transit population does very similar to having true nodal disease. Is that an accurate summary? Yeah, yeah, that's that's kind of what we saw. Perhaps the presence of disease in the intervening lymphatics 
um, makes it more difficult to completely eradicate. But, you know, in terms of prognosis, when compared to bone invasive T4 disease, um, in transit metastasis patients had higher rates of, of squamous cell recurrence. And I know it wasn't the primary focus of your paper, and I'm going back here. I think uh-huh. just to put into context how difficult this research is, you ended up having, um, I think, 72 patients with in-transit metastasis, which, if I'm not mistaken, is at least three, if not four times the size of the next largest cohort. So it takes, mm-hmm. it really is a finding the needle in the haystack yeah. type project to be able to pool enough patients to have actual meaningful statistics about what this means for the patient. So again, it wasn't the primary focus, but is there anything about the characteristics of the patients within transit metastasis that um, is relevant to the listeners in terms of, is the age similar to, to the general cohort? Is there a significant prevalence of immunosuppression? Was, did you all look at that at all? We did look at that. You know, immunosuppression was found to be uh, uh, present in about a third of patients, um, which is, I think, kind of comparable to sort of the general population of patients we see with squamous cell carcinomas. The The age range was relatively wide, but, you know, we've looked at this in the past and haven't seen a positive association of age with uh, incidence of in-transit metastasis. So um, maybe just since we're talking about two separate topics here, we're talking about Uh recurrence and we're talking about survival. Uh, Just for our listeners who may be at the gym or driving or doing a million other things, let's tackle these again one by one. Can you just summarize the differences in recurrence between your high-risk node-negative tumors, your in-transit metastasis tumors, and then your tumors with known nodal disease? Just for recurrence? Sure. So recurrence rates at two years. um, And I think there's some data to suggest that beyond two years, you know, the recurrence rates are not significantly higher compared to, um, I guess, most of the recurrences occurring within two years. You know, T3 and 0 tumors were less than 20% recurrence at two years. Uh, T4 for bone invasion was kind of in the mid to upper 20s. And then for nodal and in-transit metastasis, it was kind of in the mid-50s for their recurrence rates. Meaning that within two years, mm -hmm. half of patients with nodal disease and or in-transit mets will recur, again, regardless of treatment, essentially, because it's a treatment agnostic study. That's correct, yes. Okay. How does it differ when you're actually looking at the risk of, of death? Sure. So... You know, as as we know, uh, cutaneous squamous cell carcinoma uh, is not the same as a lot of other solid tumors in terms of prognosis, uh, in terms of of disease specific death and overall survival being being the most meaningful endpoints for a staging system. But because it is a staging system and prognosis is important, we wanted to have a survival outcome that we reported, and because. A lot of these patients, especially immunosuppressed patients and elderly patients, have competing risks for mortality. We wanted to look at disease-specific death because we thought that would be the most relevant. So, uh, or disease-specific survival, excuse me. So, 
you know, the disease specific survival, we actually added a, another cohort into our, uh, into our pairwise comparisons, which was M1 patients. And so when you look at the disease specific survival outcomes, you know, again, in pairwise comparison, um, there was no statistically significant difference between node positive and in transit vets in our analysis. And when you look at their Kaplan-Meier curves, they, they kind of, um, almost overlap with each other. There's not much of a difference. The patients who had metastatic disease weren't, we didn't have a lot of those in our analysis uh, to compare to. It is not a super common phenomenon and we, and we hadn't had a lot of those coded in a surgical um, database. But all that to say, they had uh, numerically worse outcomes, but because the numbers were small, it wasn't statistically significant. So if you look at two years or or uh, yeah, two-year disease-specific survival rates. The M1 patients were in the mid-20%, uh, were still alive at two years. In transit metastases and nodal metastases, again, it was in the mid to upper 50s for both of those. And then for T4 patients with bone evasion, it was in the upper 70% for their two-year survival, disease-specific survival. And T3s were almost 90%. And all of that sort of makes sense in the context of what we know, given that unlike in melanoma, the ma- major cause of mortality in cutaneous squamous cell carcinoma, if not other causes, is the local regional disease rather than metastasis, right? These are yeah. sort of the the local progression of the tumor rather than the, the liver met or the brain met or the lung nodule that we see in our melanoma patients. So I think that that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, exactly. Now, coming from the world of radiation oncology and and being on a Mohs surgery podcast, I'm curious if you have any particular thoughts on the management of these. And that's a little bit outside of the scope of your actual article. But I'm curious, is there a role for radiation in the management of in-transit metastasis? Or is that really a, a last resort, or, or how do you generally think about the, the treatment? Well, that's a good question. It's hard to answer because these, these patients with in-transit metastasis represent a very heterogeneous cohort. Uh, you know, it, it may occur to people listening that when we describe just comparing them to people who have node-positive disease, you know, even node-positive disease is a very heterogeneous cohort. And um, even the, you know, imperfect AJCC8 uh, nodal staging system, which is very similar to mucosal squamous cell carcinomas of the head and neck, you know, it, it splits patients into, into multiple prognostic groups. And so we kind of lumped them all into one. Patients who have in-transit metastasis, they can have, you know, a single lesion seen um, clinically. They can have multiple lesions. Uh, they can have lesions that arise very quickly and are rapidly growing. Uh, Most of them are recurrent, which in and of itself presents a a treatment challenge. But all that to say, uh, oh, and and some some will be immunosuppressed and therefore be at higher risk of developing high-stage disease and more frequent occurrences. So patient selection is really really important and, and challenging. You know, if there's an opportunity for resection, uh, wide local excision, I think, is often the preferred approach with adjacent lymph node 
you know, um, dissections to evaluate the nodes if they're clinically node negative. You can implement imaging up front as well before doing that. And then adjuvant therapy with radiation and maybe the addition of a systemic agent. You know, if they're EGFR um, mutations, you could consider cetuximab. For patients who are immunocompetent, a lot of times when we see them presenting with in-transit metastasis, uh, we'll consider, especially if um, there's a large burden of disease or if uh, surgery might be challenging, giving, you know, trying immuno, I'm sorry, yeah, immunotherapy um, to see if they, you know, get a response. Uh, we've seen that be effective in a lot of these patients um, who are not, frankly, distantly metastatic, but have um, uh, a relatively significant, perhaps not amenable to surgery um, burden of disease. Radiation therapy can be given adjuvantly um, for patients who have disease that is not surgically resectable. Definitive radiation with or without some sort of radiosensitizer could be considered. Um, cetuximab is the one that comes to mind. But the outcomes will, will, you know, will counsel patients that um, outcomes would be less uh, favorable. And that, there's some data from WashU looking at definitive radiation and recurrent, recurrent tumors don't do as well as primary. And, and so we'd be, probably be able to extrapolate that into in transit meds to think that they wouldn't do as well. But uh, we have seen, you know, some people respond nicely. So it's, it's, a, it's certainly a clinical challenge, uh, which is partly why we did this, this analysis in the first place to sort of say, yeah, we can expect some people to have some disease control, but the, the risk of failure is high. And so you want to definitely balance the therapeutic index when you're, when you're making decisions. And certainly it'll be interesting. You know, we, we're getting more and more data on our immunotherapy. We've got uh, simiplumab and, and other PD-1 and PD-1 ligand drugs approved and whether they're best used in a neoadjuvant setting or an adjuvant setting and just mm -hmm. going out on the limb here, whether they at some point will be potentially injectable drugs for intralesional therapy, mm -hmm. I think could be, could be very interesting. And so with that in mind, certainly in uh, melanoma, we've got the intralesional TVEC, uh, TVEC being mm -hmm. the modified uh, herpes simplex virus-based uh, oncologic uh, or oncolytic immunotherapy that's FDA-approved. And um, I think it'll be very interesting to see if that drug or that injectable will have a future in cutaneous squamous cell carcinoma as well. Right. I was looking on clinicaltrials.gov, and the University of Arizona has a trial ongoing for the treatment of low-risk uh, cutaneous squamous cell carcinoma with sort of primary um, injections of TVEX for keratoacanthomas and well-differentiated squamous cell carcinomas. And I'm sure that over time, we will see the use of TVEX in the um, in-transit world as well. Mm -hmm. In um, the head and neck ENT literature, TVEX has been used in combination with pembrolizumab for recurrent or metastatic head and neck squames that are refractory to platinum-based chemotherapy and have shown some promise there. So I found one case report where TVEC was used in the solid organ transplant recipient who had in-transit METs. That was at UCLA and published in Dermatologic Surgery last year. 
But I think that will definitely be a hot topic um, for the future. Yeah, it'll be exciting to kind of watch that space uh, with with some of the emerging data that comes out and seeing seeing how that maybe translates over to cutaneous squamous cell patients. Well, Tim, I think this has been a really interesting conversation about a topic that we don't, fortunately, I suppose, think about too often. Is there anything else that you want to share with our listeners uh, before we wrap up today? I, I would say that uh, Cleveland Clinic and Brigham and Women's want to do a, a subsequent analysis looking at patterns of failure and um, and patterns of practice with how patients, these, these 72 patients were treated uh, and look at some of the perhaps multivariable analyses on, on the outcomes that they experience based on, you know, other specifics of their treatment and patient factors. So, Keep an eye out for that. Uh, I, I think that might be interesting to kind of help guide what the next steps are. And then perhaps we might see in-transit metastases uh, added to the nodal staging for the next edition of the AJCC staging for cutaneous squamous cell. Well, Tim, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me today. I want to thank our listeners for their attention. If you're listening to us through one of the major podcast platforms, please make sure to hit subscribe so that you're the first to be notified about upcoming episodes. To all of the listeners, please share the podcast with your colleagues and trainees. Let us know how we're doing and who you'd like to have on the show by contacting info at mosecollege.org. We're delighted to be back up and running, and thank you. And I hope you'll join me next time on Conversations in Mohs Surgery.